So I was teased last week that I tried to fit 10 pounds of flour or something like that into a five pound bag. Um, that's very true. I, I recognize that. Um, as we are thinking through um, how we are going to implement um, this change in church government, we need to think through as we move into the summer. We'll obviously use Sunday evenings for the book study we've told you about. Um, we need to be thinking through these qualifications. We'll start taking nominations early in the fall um, so that by the time December comes around, we'll have vetted candidates for elders and be able to vote on them at the annual meeting. So we're quickly coming up on bringing on lay elders as we work on the Constitution, as we work through these qualifications together. These last two are the ones that have the most discussion and debate and questions. Um, so I will do my best to work through what I have here. Um, and this will be the last time that we talk through this until um, the end of August. Um, the last thing I had meant to get to was to talk through deacons in one lesson. Um, we will withhold that, obviously, until uh, a later date, all right? So we've called these last ones family qualifications. These are the most debated among uh, the qualifications, and I'll discuss the options for each one. Some of them you're going to be able to be like, yeah, I don't, I don't see that at all. Um, but I, I want to help us, even as we work through the different options, to help us understand what exactly is being intended in uh, the qualification. So first, the husband of one wife. Therefore, an overseer must be the husband of one wife. 1 Timothy 3.2, Titus 1.6, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife. There's four main interpretations on this phrase. Okay? The elder must be married, therefore no single men are allowed. That's one interpretation. Number two, an elder must not be a polygamist. That'd be a problem. Uh, number three, an elder must have only one wife his entire life. All right? that, that's a common one. And then the last one, an elder must be faithful to his wife. Uh, so let's work through each of these in sequence. An elder must be married. Some hold to this view for obvious reasons. The text literally says husband. He must be a husband. The argument continues that the other qualifications are concrete. He must be above reproach, sober-minded, self-controlled, hospitable. In a similar way, then, if a man is not married... He's not the husband of a wife, of one wife, and therefore he would fail to meet the qualifications. Now, I believe that this interpretation is not helpful for several reasons. First, the focus of the phrase is that an elder must be faithful in the relationship, not that he must be married. The Greek literally reads a one-woman man with an emphasis on that first word, one. So we're not just trying to play fast and loose with the text to make it say what we want it to say. We're trying to understand it very clearly. It says a one woman man. Second, Paul clearly teaches elsewhere in the New Testament that singleness is a gift from God. Why would he contradict himself here? Singleness has many advantages in ministry over being married, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. Third, Paul could have written that an elder must be a man who has a wife. He could have stated it that way if he wanted it to be that qualification. That's different than a one-woman man. And fourth, this qualification, think of it, would eliminate several important New Testament leaders and teachers. Most obviously, Paul himself, but also, also Jesus and also Timothy. 
Fifth, if we're being this wooden with our interpretation, then we would also have to say that every elder must have at least two children because he must be the father and keep his children, plural, in subjection, still remaining at home. Because Paul says he must manage his children well. But Paul is giving a general qualification regarding marital fidelity. Most elders are going to be married. That was the common situation of that day. It's the common situation of today. But it's not the requirement. That's not the focus of that qualification. The requirement is faithfulness in the marriage once married and purity before married if unmarried. Purity before marriage. Um, Second, we'll move quickly through this. An elder must not be a polygamist. Some New Testament scholars have said, well, that's what he was actually trying to address because that was a common situation in the Greek and Roman culture. Um, and, and that's true. Polygamy was common in that secular, unbelieving culture, but it, that was uncommon in the Christian culture. This wasn't practiced by Christians. Um, this is also highlighted in all three lists of the character qualifications, the two for the elders and then the one for the deacon. Um, It puts it at the head of those lists. If this was rare among believers, why would Paul make this one of the main things that he's addressing? It's highly unlikely that that's the focus of what Paul is doing. A history of interpretation among Bible teachers, um, Bible teaching believers have affirmed this over the centuries. All right, the one that we talk about probably the most and maybe you're most familiar with. An elder must have only one wife his entire life. Um, This third view is is much more common, at least it it has been in the last several decades. This view states that a man is not permitted to remarry under any circumstances and be qualified as an elder or deacon. If his wife dies or if he's divorced, he's to remain unmarried. If he does remarry, then he's no longer qualified to be an elder or a deacon because he's no longer the husband of only one wife in his lifetime. Now, proponents of this view provide several strong arguments. First, it takes the phrase, husband of one wife, seriously. It's trying to be fair with the text, and this offers a plausible interpretation. Uh, Second, this was a historic view of many in the early church. They took it this way. No divorced people. Um, No um, people who've been married a second time if their wife has passed away. Um, The early church also promoted celibacy after the divorce or death of a spouse. Uh, Third, the Apostle Paul, while allowing remarriage in some cases, he favored singleness and celibacy in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, I wish that you were as I am, as a single man. So proponents of this view would argue that an elder is held to a higher standard than the average church member since he's to provide a faithful example to his church family. Those are the arguments for this view. Those who argue against this interpretation, they first state that it's very doubtful that Paul holds elders to a higher standard than the rest of God's people. So they would argue against that last point. That's not the point or pattern of these qualifications. All of the moral and spiritual, not the gifting qualifications, are what is expected of every single believer. So why is he going to add some that says you guys have to have a higher standard here in this one? Second, Paul indicates elsewhere that remarriage is a viable option in certain cases. In 1 Corinthians 7, he tells those um, that it is permissible to marry if that would help in their sanctification. 
He says the same about those who lose a spouse. Uh, Third, it is wrong to elevate divorce and remarriage as some kind of unpardonable sin. Just think about it for a moment. Think about who's giving us these instructions and qualifications. Who was this man before he was saved? He's a murderer. He's a murderer. If a murderer is able to be forgiven and later serve as a spiritual leader, then wouldn't it seem rather arbitrary that a person who remarries cannot serve in such a capacity? Why are we saying the one is worse than the other? Is that understanding, the goal is to understand the qualifications carefully and clearly. Is that doing so when we do that? If scripture indicates that a remarried man cannot serve as an elder, then we must obey, no matter what we think of this requirement or qualification. So again, we're not trying to play fast and loose with the text to say, I want it to say what I want it to say. We're trying to understand the text first. But I would say that doesn't seem to be Paul's intent. So the fourth one is an elder must be faithful to his wife. And this is the argument I'm personally convinced of. Um, As I've talked to the other pastors, I believe I can say for them, this is the one they're convinced of. It understands this qualification to be stating that an elder is to be faithful to his wife in a monogamous relationship. Exemplary faithfulness. This view would then be prohibiting polygamy, promiscuity, and homosexuality. To fulfill this qualification, a potential elder must honor, love, and be devoted to his wife and to her alone. So this view would allow for the possibility of an elder having been remarried after the death of his wife or even after divorce. The most convincing point here to me is that the emphasis of these qualifications is stressing the current or present situation of a man's moral and spiritual character. Can you look at his life today and say, is this a one-woman man? Is he faithful in this area? The real issue is not so much about where he has come from, but who he is now by God's grace. So the central point of the qualification provided is to help us ask and answer, can this person serve as a godly example to us in the area of marriage and family? I mean, think about it practically. Most of us don't even know all of those who've gone through a situation like this, and that's just fine. That's just fine. But is the man that we're saying is qualified to be an elder, is he currently faithful to his wife? Is he above reproach in this area? Has he proven himself faithful in this qualification in a demonstrable way? If so, then it's possible for him to become an elder. So we're interpreting this qualification based on observable, present character of faithfulness. All right? Um, the next one, it's a, it's a little bit shorter. I think you'll be glad for that. Well-managed household. All right, 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Um, we'll talk about the second one in a minute. This qualification raises two possible questions. First, must an elder have children? So it's similar. Does he have to be married? Number two, must his children be believers? We'll get to that one in a minute. Paul does not say that he must keep his child singular submissive, but his children. The point in 1 Timothy 3 is not that he have a child or more than one child, that um, whether he has one or many, that's not the point, but that he leads them well and they're submissive. What it's again saying is, is he a faithful, godly example of what a father should be? 
Again, if we get woodenly literal here, we have to insist that he have at least two children and they have to live in his home, right? Because he's managing his household well. They have to be children, not adults. So Paul's reason for mentioning children is that, again, in this vital area of servant leadership, an elder must demonstrate exemplary faithfulness. When you look at him and he says, I'm, he's a shepherd, he's saying, follow me as I follow Christ. And this is a mature, sober-minded, godly man that we're eager to follow as God's people. Again, not perfection, but consistency. A man's home life and his relationship with his children are to be seen as testing grounds for his ability to lead the church. Now, the harder one is Titus 1.6. His children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Uh, When we went through Titus, the book of Titus, uh, we, we talked about this one a little bit. Does Titus teach that a man must have believing children? Is that the right interpretations? interpretation? A few translations choose to translate this phrase as having faithful children not accused of wildness or rebellion. So I think this is the right interpretation for four reasons. First, the translation of this phrase as faithful instead of believing is an accurate option. Again, it's not just trying to manipulate the text. That's exactly how it's translated in other places. The Greek word is translated as faithful. And this makes more sense of what Paul is seeking to emphasize. When compared with the qualification in 1 Timothy 3, this translation makes the better sense. And considering the context of 1 Timothy and Titus, Paul is telling Titus to raise up elders in a younger, more spiritually immature church, right? Remember he says, the churches are having trouble. We need to raise up elders and appoint them in these young churches, right? So these are young, immature churches. That's his letter to Titus. In 1 Timothy, he's writing about which church? Ephesus, a stronger, healthier church. But which standard, if we say Titus is for believing children, is the higher standard? It's actually the Titus with the immature churches. That doesn't make sense, does it? He's saying in these immature churches, when you're looking for new elders, make sure their children are believers. That doesn't seem to be the best way to understand that. Would he have given a higher standard in those churches rather than to Timothy, who's pastoring the Mormon church in Ephesus? Next, to interpret or insist that an elder's children must be believers raises some very challenging theological questions. Such as, what if an elder does not have children old enough yet to express a credible profession of faith? Is he disqualified because he has young children? Should he have to wait until they're old enough? What if he has seven believing children and his eighth child does not believe? Is that man disqualified? Lastly, it seems very unlikely that Paul would require something a believing father cannot control. This is a larger theological and practical argument. Salvation is of the Lord. Even a faithful, godly father cannot create faith in his children. The question in view remains, is he faithfully shepherding at home? If not, then he's not ready to faithfully shepherd God's people in the church. This is something as God's people were to be examining and looking at together. Is this man faithful in his home, if he has children or if he doesn't? For those God has seen fit to give children, he uses our children to help sanctify us. You who have children, who have raised children or have children in the home now, you know that well. 
Parenting and shepherding are functionally very, very similar. They are. They teach a man some significant spiritual lessons. Parenting and shepherding are filled with pressures and challenges and people you cannot control. You can't just say, you must do this, and their heart immediately gets in line. That's not how it works. I wish it did. It does not. But God uses those pressures and challenges over and over to grow us independence, to help us lean into the means that he's given us, to help us trust him in giving us those, those tools. And what we see over and over again is that parenting does not require perfect fruitfulness. That's one of the hardest things about parenting is that we're pretty vulnerable when we really get down to it, right, spiritually. I wish I could produce faith in my children, but I can't. The only thing I can do is be faithful. I'm required to be faithful. Before God, I must be faithful to parent as he's commanded. But I can't create faith. I can't create fruit. The same is true of pastoring. I can't make people grow in their walk with God. In both cases, our greatest tool is the truth of God's word, pointing those we minister to toward God himself. So we give and we lead with the truth. And again, I just want to stamp this. Even for those who are parents now, the requirement is faithfulness. Fruitfulness is up to God. Trust him in that and do your job diligently. So can this person serve as an example to the congregation in the area of parenting? It doesn't mean are all his children saved, but is he speaking truth to them? And is that evident? Again, it's not demanding a specific spiritual outcome outside of a parent's control. Alex Strauch writes in his book on this qualification, those who interpret this qualification to mean that an elder must have believing children, Christian children, plant an impossible burden on the father. Even the best Christian fathers cannot guarantee that their children will believe. It's a supernatural act of God. God, not good parents, bring salvation. Jonathan Edwards gave this illustration. He compares the responsibility of Christian parents to stacking firewood into the fireplace as you're about to build a fire. And he says, you stack the logs and their truth, and you keep stacking the logs in there as the parent. But you pray that the Holy Spirit sets those logs ablaze. You can't do that. Only the Spirit can. So parents are to be faithfully praying and working and asking the Spirit to ignite that truth in the hearts of their children in order that they turn to him in faith. So the point then is for, for elders that they're faithful in this. Are they a model of this? Are they an encouragement to the rest of the body to parent like they're parenting? All right, that's the last one I have questions this evening on these qualifications or the other ones that are on your sheet. All right, maybe that's different than you've heard before. Yeah, Dave. One comment. Yeah. Um, the uh, relative to the third option. Yeah. Uh, Jesus said that believers in heaven are like the angels. Yeah. They're not married. Yeah. Uh, the covenant ends in yeah. marriage. Yeah. Uh, so someone can't be married. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. It resolves that for us, doesn't it? Good. What else? Other questions? Yes, sir. The word children is... I, I, I have one child. He's 
just turned 60. Yeah. That's not the same as what many of you have, these small creatures running around the house <laughs> who are under your supervision, your guidance, your instruction. You are with them. You are responsible for what they're doing and so on. And is this distinct? Is there any distinguish, distinguishment between the child who is in your household for whom you have immediate, mm. now, parental guidance mm. as believing parents instructing mm. children. Mm. But when that child is 25 or 30 or 40 years old and is no longer a part of your inside household, how do we distinguish between the child in your house mm. and that grown adult mm. who may also have children? Yeah, yeah, home? yeah. Are you asking as far as what responsibility does a parent have then? I mean, and, and now the responsibility of a parent who is aspiring to the office of elder. Yeah. Um, are we talking about the children that yeah. for whom he is now immediately? Yeah, father, good question, yeah. Or the ones who have moved out, grown and gone on and for mm. whatever, whatever reason may have yeah. departed. Yeah, yeah. Or whatever, yeah. Or have been to it. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think that's why the qualification is at, is looking at faithfulness, present faithfulness. I know of a, a well-known pastor. You'd know his name. He has two children. Um, neither of them are walking with God. One is very clearly admitted they're not a believer. And I think sometimes we look at that and say, well, that must mean he didn't do his job. I think we better be really careful in making conclusions like that. We don't know that. We can't know that. Um, and from my understanding, um, from what I've seen from a distance, that's not the case. That's not the case. So, good. Yes, yes, ma'am. Could you elaborate a little bit more where you had talked about, like, divorce or if a man's husband or wife were to yeah. die yeah. Oh, and then he remarries? Yeah. Specific, I think I've seen this, like, just really disrupt a church before, and mm. I've never been able to really reach mm. a good understanding of what the scripture has to say. Yeah. If a person's been divorced and remarried, yes. can they be an elder? Right. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think the big key is in that is I don't want to make that the main part of what I'm looking at, saying has he or has he not been, but is he faithful now? So let's say there's something that happened even recently. I'd probably say wisdom would say let's give that some time so we're all confident that we can say this is a one-woman man. That's what I want to be able to say right now. So sometimes there's wisdom in saying, Let, let's give some space to that. Um, and I think that's what you need to figure out as a body. So what I want to be careful of is saying, I'm going to say this is how it is to be applied in every church everywhere. You know what I mean? And I think that one option kind of does that. It says a divorced man is never available for this office ever. And I think that's too hard. I don't think that's what the interpretation or the, the text is trying to lead us toward. These are general qualifications to say, is this true of him today? And can, can you see some evidence of faithfulness over time? So is that five years? Is that ten years? I'm not sure. It depends on how well the body knows him. And I think that's why it's a wisdom decision that especially the elders would need to vet. And then the body would need to be confident in that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Does. That's good. Good. Yeah, David. It's kind of curious to follow up. 
So I would, yeah, that's bringing out the hard questions. So, so what I would say is, what I would say is, as you, as you begin to get into those kind of situations and you begin working with people, those are some of the most complex issues that I've dealt with pastorally. And as I talk to fellow pastors that they deal with pastorally, what I would say is, I think wisdom would say right now, let's have you step out while this is happening and, and let's help you work through that because this is really important. Yeah, I'm not saying a permanent call. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, my, my thought would be in wisdom, I'd say, let, let's step out for right now. Because, I mean, if there's a case where, you know, the wife is leaving him or has committed some kind of sin or, um, you know, definitely. I think it's, let, let's work on that. Yeah, Dave? Yeah. Oh, time's up. No. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a that's a really good one. Um, yeah, and what what if it's a staff pastor? Um, there's a sense where we want to say discipleship at home is really really important. Um, so I would say again, in wisdom, you maybe need to say, let's just step out for now, and, and you work on discipling at home, because um, that's something that that God would honor. I think if we did that and say we want to be really careful with that and let's say we even ask him to step out and some people would disagree with that. I think the sense of saying being willing to say him being able to say I'll step out for the sake of working on my kids and for the testimony in the church would actually build credibility for a man like that. You know? and, and again, as, as a body, we're not trying to sit in judgment and say, hey, you can't control something that's raising teenagers is challenging. So the idea would be let's come around him as a body and help and pray and speak to that child. Um, we need to get better and better at shepherding our children together. You know, that's good. Bob? Yeah. yeah even if baseball if you're not hitting the ball, you put it under the minors. Yeah, there you go. That's right. In your discussion with elders, you talked a lot about they would be counseling and shepherding. But yeah. I don't really see that addressed as a qualification. So how do we look at the counseling and shepherding so I would just say that that's part of what I would say is part of apt to teach. Can he do that? Can he handle the word in different situations? And again, um, last week we said he doesn't have to be a public speaker necessarily, but can he handle the word when, when somebody comes to him with an issue or a burden or a hurt? Is he going to lead them to the Lord? Or maybe even a point of discontentment and disunity. Is he solving that and leading toward peace? That's part of where I think we can see qualifications or not. So, yeah, good question. Good clarification. Good. Any other questions? We figured this out? <laughs> yes, ma'am. So, would this disqualify a man to be single? Say that again? Would this disqualify a man to be married? No, I could see a single man being an elder. I think we just have to talk really carefully, um, be involved in his life, be clear that we as a body, see faithfulness, a model of spiritual maturity. That's what this is describing, a model of spiritual maturity. Not perfection, but maturity. That's good. All right, any last questions? All right, let's pray, 
And um, let me dismiss our new members. Let's stand. Put our new members head out to the lobby. Um, I'll pray, and then we'll be dismissed this evening. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the wisdom you give to us. Lord, we're excited about what you're doing in our body. We're excited about how you're raising our eyes onto the fields that are white unto harvest. Lord, I pray that because we know the gospel ourselves, we've been recipients of it, that we would be eager, we would be glad, we would be joyful to share this good news with others. We would invite others into the joy of our Lord. Help us to be passionate about the mission that you've given us to make disciples both here and around the world. And Lord, even as we work through uh, changes in the way that we're structured, I pray that you'd continue to give us good unity, help us to encourage each other, help us to see this is for the benefit of our building up. Um, And I pray that you continue to help us grow together in this. Thank you for the day, for the opportunity to be in your house, to hear you speak to us again. May we respond with obedience, joyful, glad submission. In Jesus' name, amen.